Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm Bill Words with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Of course, special moment also for this uh, intro song because The Boys Season 3 is coming back on Friday, premiering on Prime Video. So I'm very excited for that. I hope uh, you're catching up on the show if you're also, uh, if you're also a fan or if you're not, I, I really recommend it. This is the episode of June 2nd, 2022. June has started. This is episode 76, and I have two guests for this episode uh, this week. My colleague Luca Bertoletti uh, will join us, European Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center. We're talking about trips, and that's not holiday trips. That is uh, uh, intellectual property agreements internationally. Why do they matter, and what exactly are some countries in the World Trade Organization pushing for? Also in this episode... Adam Barter is uh, joining us uh, as well. Uh, Adam Barter is the director of Epicenter, the European Policy Information uh, Center based in Brussels. And uh, Adam uh, is originally from Hungary and, of course, uh, joining us, as he sometimes does, to talk about what is going on in Hungary. Now, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, uh, recently managed to get uh, some sort of a compromise deal on Russian energy sanctions. So we're talking about the implications of that and what exactly Hungarian politics uh, uh, is, is looking towards here. So let's get started. First off, Politico's headline, Greta Thunberg doesn't want you to talk about her anymore. All right, done. And our brief exchange with my colleague uh, Luca Bertoletti, European Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center, Talk about TRIPS, what exactly is that? How does the World Trade Organization handle cases of intellectual property? What are the implications here for future pandemics when it comes to patterns on uh, on vaccines? Luca, loop our audience in here. What exactly is this TRIPS waiver I'm hearing about? Because this is not a holiday trip, right? So, I mean, it's like the TRIPS waiver. What is this? Yeah, thank you, Bill, for inviting me. So the TRIPS waiver is a proposal that some countries at WTO level uh, presented uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, actually. So when the first vaccines were introduced, uh, to waive exactly the uh, TRIPS agreement. The TRIPS agreement stands for Agreement on Trade Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. And it's basically a WTO agreement that preserves the intellectual properties over uh, some scientific breakthrough and, in general, uh, everything that is under patent, including, for example, the COVID vaccine. Uh, some countries, especially India and South Africa, propose to waive these trips uh, in order to produce locally uh, more vaccines uh, in, for their population and to export to third countries. Uh, obviously, the biggest problem is not really the intellectual property, but the biggest problem is the manufacturers and how this is actually made. I mean, if you think about AstraZeneca, for example, most of the vaccines were made in India. So outside Europe, most of the vaccines produced with a license of AstraZeneca were actually done in India. So it's not really a question of intellectual property. And right now, in 2022, it's not even more a question of um, vaccine in general, because at least in the Western world, most of the, most of the population is vaccinated. And there are tons of supplies of vaccine that are going to expire if they're not exported to third countries. Right. So, so that so that we understand this correctly. So the, the the claim by countries such as India is that we produce these vaccines, but we produce them for other countries such as you know Europe and, and countries in, in North America, but we don't get enough 
of the supply of the vaccines and they say it's because we're not allowed to produce because the, the the formula of the vaccine is protected by the pharmaceutical company correct so so and, and you say it's the it's the, the the manufacturing process overall that's you know that needs to be scaled up now what what could these countries do instead to make sure that for instance like let's say and this this could not just be about COVID, right i mean let's say there's another disease i mean maybe it's monkeypox who knows right and then uh, just for that scalability of these of these vaccines like how what should countries do instead well first of all it's not really a question of intellectual property because there are many agreements between pharmaceutical companies Cominardi, uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine in Europe has not been produced by Pfizer, it's been produced by BioNTech. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Moderna had an agreement with Novartis uh, here in Europe to produce in Novartis uh, uh, facilities the vaccine. So there are many ways that, that a pharmaceutical company, especially in a pandemic right now, are given for free away their intellectual property in order to scale up the production. And we have seen it. I mean, right now, I think 95%, 96% of the uh, Western population is actually um, vaccinated with two, three, even four doses in some countries. So it's not really a problem of vaccine, uh, of vaccine delivery or vaccine production. The problem is more on the infrastructure that that country has. Some of those countries are not able to keep the vaccine, for example, refrigerated in time to be given to the population. Some African countries have, for example, this, uh, this, has this issue. Uh, some countries, for example, India, uh, have a, a very strong movement of no vaccine because of their religious belief. So it's not really a problem of which we can agree or don't agree, but we cannot give all of the fault to intellectual property right now. Uh, and as you, as you said, the problem will be for a future pandemic. And now we have monkeypox. Monkeypox already existed in the past. Uh, it was much stronger and we already developed a vaccine in the past. Obviously, we can redevelop a new vaccine, much easier to use, less dangerous. I mean, that time during the 70s, when 16, 17, when the uh, pox was actually a, a big issue. Many people were, sorry, between 50 and 70 when the vaccination actually started, many people were actually feeling really bad because basically they were putting virus inside of you and you were going with the pox box here on, on your arm. It was quite brutal, yeah, but, but it worked because you didn't hear for basically a century almost about this, uh, this disease, this virus. So it actually worked. And so, Luca, so Luca, because because we're short on time, that's why I wanted to get to one last point before I have to, to let you go. Um, and that is, um, what do you think the consequences would be? Uh, you say intellectual property is not to blame, but there's probably also um, some unintended consequences. If the TRIPS waiver were to get through, what could be the consequences? Oh, well, uh, it's very easy. I mean, why a company such as... A small startup that could be, for example, BioNTech or Moderna. Moderna is not a big pharma, and they develop one of the biggest vaccines and most used vaccine in Europe. BioNTech was basically a, a very small startup until the COVID vaccine. So, have to do R and D, research and development of new vaccine. If the only way that we get the money, which is selling the license to other companies to create vaccine, will be taken away. 
So there will be a top in innovation because nobody will have the courage to say why we should innovate if any state can come and say, oh, it's a question of uh, national security and we take it away. And by the way, in the TRIPS agreement, there is already an, a, a point that says that during the, in this, uh, during a pandemic, the state can actually ask the manufacturers to take away the IP for a, a certain amount of time. So doing it on at WTO level will be actually dangerous for the future of innovation and medical research in general. And then a bit of a longer exchange with Adam Barter, director of Epicenter, the European Policy Information Network, where we're talking about Hungary. Hungary has recently stopped a more thorough proposition on Russian energy sanctions. So let's see what he had to say. So we have Adam Barter from Epicenter here with us. Adam, back on the program. Um, before we start off uh, quizzing Adam about uh, some of the implications um, of this week, but of the issue overall, I wanted to say that we are recording this on uh, on a Tuesday to be broadcasted on a Thursday. Now, there's some moving parts with the European Council, and there might be announcements that might uh, come after um, after our recording here. As it looks Right now, the European Council seems to have found some sort of an agreement that will cut about two-thirds of Russian uh, uh, oil imports. It seems to be specific for pipelines, and that was a, a demand seemingly by Hungary, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about. First of all, Adam, um, sorry that we're quizzing you mostly about your country of origin. Um, is, is that is that sort of the feel you get, that uh, you kind of have to answer for the things that are being done in Budapest? Well, sometimes that is the case indeed, but I think... Hungarian foreign policy has been influencing EU foreign policy for quite a while, so I'm happy to talk about it. And the good news is that there seems to be a preliminary agreement indeed. Uh, let's see how the implementation is going to go. But Orban and my country indeed held up the negotiations for almost a month, uh, so I'm glad that we got here in the end. Yeah, so it's been a, quite a journey, and uh, this seems to be the case on, on a few uh, um on a few issues where Hungary always like takes a while to decide and then ends up saying, okay, we'll do it under these conditions. And we get to that uh, in a moment. But first off, why does Hungary, what's the official position here? Why does Hungary actually started opposing the sanctions package? What is the reasoning that the government puts forward? Well, I think there is a more understanding um, explanation and a less understanding explanation in terms of your attitude towards the Hungarian government. The more understanding would be that Hungary is indeed very much dependent on Russia when it comes to energy sources, uh, both on gas but also on oil. Um, so the vast majority of the gas imports um, comes from Russia, the vast majority of crude oil comes from Russia, and indeed the nuclear power plants, so electricity production, is very much reliant on Rosatom-built um, nuclear reactors. So Hungary is dependent on Russian energy. That is a fact. But the Hungarian foreign policy made it even more dependent over the last 12 years. And I think that's the real issue that we can address. Um, the less understanding explanation is, I think, that Orban wanted to extract some concessions from the European Union and his colleagues in the European Council. Um, there is a massive fight about the next generation EU funding at the moment um, because of the rule of law conditionality. And uh, so Hungary hasn't received a penny of that um, as of yet. And I think Orban wanted to link the sanctions 
and some of the EU funding together uh, so he can extract that money from the European Commission um, and spend it in the next couple of years. Now, you, you mentioned two points here, and I wanted to jump on the first one first off, and that's sort of the more charitable um, explanation that, that you've given. And in a way, like we could, we, could, we could discuss this here. You know, we could say, well, I mean, Hungary is a, a landlocked country. It doesn't have the opportunity of having LNG terminals such as uh, countries in the Baltics or Germany or Poland. It doesn't have that type of um, um, uh, opportunity. And none of us really expected this to be. We all changed our minds in the EU very quickly over the last, uh, over the last few weeks and months. Um, so uh, some countries have really not been on the case on doing this quickly. Um, uh, Viktor Orban has said that this would be, um, it, it, thorough sanctions would be an atomic bomb for the Hungarian economy. Um, would it just not be well, uh, a bit um, irresponsible for take, to take such rash decisions, especially now as the economy is still struggling after, after COVID? Well, if it is indeed an atomic bomb, as he says, then he just signed his own death sentence because he did agree to the sanctions with a caveat, indeed, that some of the pipelines uh, won't be affected at least up until the end of the year. Um, I'm not pretending that it's not an incredibly costly policy. I think these sanctions are very costly, both for Hungary and the other 27 um, EU members. Um, but um, I think we have to acknowledge that um, Hungary has been following very much a pro-Kremlin foreign policy over the last 12 years. And that has multiplied the costs for the country when it comes to decoupling from Russia. So just to give you an example, earlier this year, Hungary signed a new deal with Gazprom for um, gas imports up until 2030. Um, this happened just a couple of weeks before uh, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. You could argue that by this point, I think it became a lot more obvious to a lot of us within the EU that Russia is indeed pursuing an even more aggressive foreign policy than before. Um, so that might have been a bad call by the Orban government to do that. Um, same thing with the nuclear power plant being built by Rosatom. Whereas Finland decided to quit that project, Hungary is very much going full speed ahead, financed through a Russian bank, through a Russian loan. So a lot of the policy decisions of the Orban government makes the decoupling of Hungary a lot more costly from Russia than it could have been otherwise. You're right, Hungary is a landlocked country, but thanks to the single market, I think there's tremendous opportunities for better interconnectedness between EU member states. Um, Hungary is very close to Croatia. Croatia is building LNG terminals um, quite quickly and quite effectively. I think if we have better interconnectedness between uh, the regions um, in, in the Central Eastern European neighborhoods, um, it's not impossible for Czechia, Slovakia or Hungary to be less reliant on Russian energy. And indeed, I think that should be the foreign policy goal of these countries for the upcoming period. Adam, let's try and distinguish between um, the sort of the, the what is being said and sort of the reality on paper, because that seems to be to me a bit of a struggle with with Hungary, because there's, there's there's a dichotomy, there's changing views. And then there's a, a, a statement here and an interview there by Orman, and you don't really know where he stands. And if you just pick something out, you think he's either this or that. 
on paper, Hungary does follow, uh, well, the, the, the majority, if not all of the, the, the EU directives and legislations uh, by the book, implements policy, uh, follows most of the, the foreign policy decisions that are trying to be made together, denounces the people that we also denounce. In general, where you would look at the paperwork and you would say, well, Hungary is on our side, as are uh, any other uh, EU member state. Um, and then, and then, of course, there's some of these decisions being made and the closeness between Moscow and Budapest that sort of ask the question, what exactly is the, the position here? Is it being made um, deliberately vague so that we are all puzzled and we don't quite exactly know where Hungary stands and then we sort of let it go through because we don't quite know exactly? There's no clear pro-Kremlin or pro-Brussels type of attitude and that's why it's so vague and that's why we should... That, is that done on purpose, you think? I think it is partially done on purpose and partially for domestic consumption. So it's not about necessarily foreign policy goals of Hungary, but about the goals of the Orban government when it comes to the communication of its own citizens um, and some of the neighboring country's citizens. Um, it is tricky to say how much Orban actually believes in what he says. So he explains that Hungary needs to find a very careful balance between um, the interests of the European Union um, to fight back against Russian imperialism and uh, Russia's kind of uh, aims to remain an influential actor in the region, mostly through energy exports. Um, Hungary has always understood itself as a country that's between the East and West, so kind of the meeting pot of people. And that has kind of an impact on its foreign policy as well. And Orban is very much utilizing that. So whenever he speaks about um, the war in Ukraine, um, he always tries to find a very, very careful balance of saying, yes, it's an aggressive war that should be condemned, but Hungary really, really shouldn't have to do anything with it because it's not in its national interest. Well, if you're charitable to this view, I think that you can describe it as a very naive understanding of Russian aims and Russian foreign policy. Um, I think Russian expansionism uh, can tremendously harm Hungarian national interests. And it's clear to me that the Hungarian national interests are both very much a pro-EU and pro-NATO um, foreign policy. Um, I, if, if that's the charitable understanding of Orban's position, I think that's one thing. But there is a less charitable understanding, which is Orban massively changing his opinion on Russia in 2009. Um, he got elected in 2010. He visited the Kremlin as the main opposition leader just a year before. Um, and just so you know, Orban was very, very much a pro-NATO and pro-EU uh, prime minister candidate in 2009. Um, he campaigned for Tibet's independence. Uh, so he was very much against uh, Chinese expansionism. He campaigned against uh, Russians' uh, influence within uh, Eastern European countries. So he was very much a pro-Western liberal candidate in many regards. Since his visit in 2009, and I'm not sure what exactly the conversation must have been between Putin and himself, um, he very much changed that attitude. And once he got into power in 2010, 
And basically, he was very, very understanding towards Russian interests, to put it mildly. What the reasons might be, what kind of conversation was going on, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I think there was a very clear uh, change of heart when it comes to his attitudes towards Russia since 2009. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not privy to those uh, conversations, even though we'd love to know. Um, uh, and then, and then, of course, uh, it seems to be that uh, Mr. Orban is really testing the patience of the European counterparts by something you mentioned earlier, sort of this uh, treating it almost like a Turkish market when it comes to negotiating policy and outcomes, uh, uh, stalling for a while and then eventually trying to get something out of it that has nothing really to do with the initial conversations because the conversation over sanctioning Hungary over domestic uh, policy decisions has really nothing to do with sort of the foreign policy implications. But it's very possible that he was tr he's trying to use that. And it's something that um, uh, uh, also reminds me sort of the, the, the climate package uh, um, decisions where Hungary and Poland initially said, well, we're not so sure if we want to commit to those ambitions at the climate conference. But... Um, Uh, but we might be swayed if there was sort of a mechanism that helped us transition. And then with, then came the creation of the Just Transition Fund and a lot of money uh, to help Poland and Hungary uh, transition. Um, how long is that going to work? Because, I mean, if more EU member states try to do that, it would probably not really be a working relationship within the council. Um, is this going to eventually blow in the face of uh, Budapest's uh, ambitions? I'm not sure it's going to blow in the face of Budapest, to be fair, simply because this is how the EU worked for most of its lifetime. Uh, it became more complicated because now we have 27 EU member states rather than uh, six. But nevertheless, this is how European Council negotiations have worked. And I think even at the moment, a couple of member states were reasonably happy about the fact that Orban held up these negotiations. I mean, if you look at Bulgaria or Czechia, they are equally dependent on Russian energy sources, and they are equally skeptical about some of the sanctions that are being imposed. But because of either domestic policy reasons or because of their international standing, they are very unlikely to voice these opinions as loudly as Orban would. Orban's interests, domestic interests, are exactly the opposite. He's very happy to be the poster child of problems when it comes to EU negotiations because then back home he can pretend to be the only guy fighting for Hungary's national interests. But at the end of the day, the EU members are diverging when it comes to some of their national interests. And I think that's completely normal. Um, even if you just regard the broader sanctions package, if you look at the Italian or French government, they're a lot less hardline than some of the Anglo-Saxon nations or the Baltics, partially for understandable historical reasons, partially for domestic uh, political reasons. So I'm not sure this is going to blow up in the face of Hungary. Um, Orban is very clever in going only as far as he feels he can. So if you looked at um, the last two, three years of negotiations, whether it's about rule of law issues, whether it's about foreign policy issues or anything else, he always backtracks when he feels that he went too far. Um, so I don't think that in the short term it's going to blow up um, in his face. In the long term, if there is massive e-reforms and we move toward qualified majority and the council, um, even in further 
policy areas and competencies, then Orban may end up in trouble because he he's clearly not able to build a larger coalition next to him as long as he can veto something as one representative around the table, I think he can get away with it. But if he needed to build a larger coalition, um, I think the brand of Orban is so toxic that even if some other member states would agree with his policy suggestions, they would not want to be seen in the same coalition as him. And well, I would wish that Mr. Rutte in the Netherlands would get some training from Mr. Orban, because when Mr. Rutte tried to do some actually very positive changes on the EU budget, uh, he was unfortunately uh, shot down and walked away with uh, practically nothing there. So um, some countries don't seem to play the game as well as others. I had one more, well, two more questions, and then I, and then I, and then I uh, can let you go, Adam, on your way. Um, so uh, one is Poland. Poland has been a, a, a fierce ally of Hungary, and both countries have protected each other mutually in this entire rule of law conversations, because if a country uh, needs to be vetoed, that country itself cannot vote, but another country can protect it. And that has been the case for Poland and Hungary. And the idea of sanctioning two countries at once has been sort of an option, but not really been put into practice at, at all. So both countries have been helping each other. Uh, now, over the issue of Russia, there seems to be a lot of upset in Warsaw over the position that uh, that Hungary has taken. Will this permanently damage the relationship between Poland and, and Hungary? The key interests haven't disappeared. Poland doesn't want the Article 7 proceedings to become more serious, and the same applies to Hungary. In terms of domestic reforms, when it comes to the Polish or Hungarian government's attitude towards media regulation, the judiciary and the like, they have very, very similar attitudes. So I think when it comes to uh, vetoing any kind of EU sanctions on one another, that will still be the case in the near and medium term. Um, However, you're completely right. Um, It is a massive ideological difference between the Hungarian and the Polish government, how they approach uh, Russia. Um, In terms of communication, yes, Poland is going to distance itself a lot more from Hungary. Um, So if you listen to any kind of uh, politicians from the government or or the media landscape, they they were enthusiastic about implementing the Hungarian Budapest model in Warsaw. Um, I think in terms of public communication, they are not going to go ahead with it because it's clear that the Hungarian government is just so toxic within Poland when it comes to their attitude towards Russia that this would not benefit them. Um, But I don't think that has a massive impact on how the two countries' governments are going to work together when it comes to vetoing uh, some of the EU sanctions onto um, each other's government. So in the short term, I don't see any kind of changes. How it impacts the Visegrad 4 cooperation, I think it's going to become even weaker. So besides Poland and Hungary, Czechia and Slovakia are also part of that. Um, And to be fair, this V4 cooperation was always somewhat on shaky legs. So the main interest of these four governments was to extract as much cohesion money from the European Commission and the European Union as possible uh, with as little oversight as possible. Uh, So the FITO government has been an incredibly corrupt government in Slovakia. 
uh, in the previous Babbage government. Uh, same issues, and we know very much about the rule of law issues, both in Hungary and Poland. Um, so the, there was some unity in terms of goals vis-a-vis the EU, but um, at the moment, I think this kind of V4 cooperation is going to be very much put on ice um, up until the Russian situation is resolved. And then I had one last question for you, Adam, because you have one advantage over all of us. Um, you uh, speak Hungarian, uh, of course, and it's one of the probably one of the most difficult languages to learn in, uh, in, in any way. So all we can do is pull up the major news articles and translate them with Google Translate as as uh, icky as that can be sometimes to figure that out. So you have a better understanding as to uh, what the conversation within Hungary is. And so this is what I'm also interested in domestically. What is the reaction here? Like, how do we do we have polling? Do we know what people think on uh, the invasion, the reactions of the government? What's the what's the temperature right now politically within Hungary? I'm very skeptical about polling in Hungary because you have pro-government polling uh, organizations and and some of the opposition-related ones, and they th- I think they have been pretty unreliable throughout um, the last couple of years. But the biggest poll that we have had was the national elections a uh, couple of weeks ago, where Orban won his two-third majority uh, for the fourth time in the last 12 years. So one of the major campaign issues was obviously the war next door. Hungary is bordering Ukraine. A lot of people were worried about the ongoing spiral uh, that we might find ourselves in. Uh, So obviously it has been a dominating discussion. And if anything, um, I think the war uh, made Orban even more popular than he was before. Um, Simply, he was seen as the man who's trying to find a balance between NATO, Western interests, and Russian interests. His only message was that Hungary needs to avoid being part of this war at all costs. And this has been a very popular message. The opposition prime minister and candidate, when he was pushed and asked in an interview, what he would do when it comes to the war in Ukraine. If NATO asks Hungarian soldiers to go, what he would do, he said, yes, if NATO asks, then Hungarian soldiers would need to go. And this kind of message really did not resonate well with the population. They just feared that, okay, if the opposition might come close to power, uh, then we're going to get involved with this war. And obviously, with the current cost of living crisis and a lot of the uh, negative economic and political situation that's present in Hungary, the last thing people wanted was to get involved with the war. So unfortunately, I think Orban was the only candidate who managed to present himself as the reasonable statesman and trying to find a balance um, between uh, Russian interests and between NATO interests. Um, and I think it's the complete misrepre- misrepresentation of the situation. I don't think that's the right way to go about this situation. Nevertheless, uh, because of the media environment and almost a total control of uh, the government over private and public media, uh, this has been the message that has been pushed uh, before the elections. And as we have seen, it has been a very, very successful strategy leading to another constitutional majority for Orban and his party. 
Adam Bartlett, thank you so much for your insight. Eventually, we have to make a special episode where we bring you on and you give us some good news. That's about time. <laughs> thank you so much. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Adam Bartha on Twitter at Bartha underscore Adam and follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.